0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Uh, Greetings. Welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Mark Gilarducci, Director of the Governor's Office of Emergency Services, a cabinet level position, which I didn't realize until I looked at it this morning. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for coming. Great to be here, good to see you this morning. Before we talk about California disasters, which is what I was going to talk about, we just had a a discussion about uh, the collapse of the condominium tower in uh, Surfside, Florida. And you had spent time, you'd mentioned, uh, on the ground at the Oklahoma City bombing, um, what kinds of things did what kinds of things did you see, and how does that relate to what you're seeing now in Florida in terms of the building structural integrity? Yeah,
2: well, it's a it's a great question. I mean, um, I was the incident commander at, at the Oklahoma City bombing, and and was there for a better part of five weeks. Uh, The kind of collapse that you see in in Florida is really what we would consider the worst kind of collapse. It's a pancake collapse of a concrete uh, building, which means that all the floors just literally pancake on top of each other and come to the ground. And um, being able to get into uh, in between the layers of those uh, pancakes is what is so complicated. Um, Typically, you you can imagine when the when the top comes down and what you're looking at on the news is really the roof of the building. Uh, they have to to dig down and they have to to remove these layers very surgically done because conceivably there could be some void spaces that get established what we call livable void spaces. As the building comes down, it doesn't come down, uh, you know, linearly, it comes down sort of asymmetrically, but when it comes down uh, things like refrigerators or large uh, pieces of furniture could actually create a livable void space. And so what the search and rescue teams are doing now is really Methodically going through that building, uh, removing all of the non-structural materials that they can. They're getting all that debris out of the way to be able to focus on uh, on those, those layers, those pancake layers. They're listening for noises, calls, screams, cries. Uh, they're using dogs. They're using search cameras. They're using infrared, um, ground-penetrating radar. These are all devices that they're using to be able to get in and, and identify somebody who could be uh, living in one of these void spaces, and then they focus on being able to dismantle that that piece of the concrete uh, to get in there. They Remember that it's not just taking away a piece of concrete. These concretes have cross pieces of rebar and steel. Uh, that all has to be cut through, so you have to use impact hammers and cutting tools and saws and, and blowtorches. Um, very complicated. They've had several fires in the building, which is not an uncommon problem because there's pockets of gas and, other kinds of things. And so that has to be extinguished. Multiple things happening at the same time. This is a long-term effort. And even when they get to where uh, a, an individual may be located, they tend to be wrapped up in all of this debris. And so it takes maybe 15 to 18 hours, depending upon uh, the complexity of actually just extricating um, a, a person. And um, and of course, they have the obligation, not only doing all the rescue right up in the front end, but also then recovering will be covering anybody who um, is fatal, be able to get them in and, and taken back to their uh, respective families. So this is a very complex situation, something you don't see in the United States that often. Um, but I will tell you that there is a nexus to California on this. And that is that that when we see the big earthquake here in, in California, what it happens in the Bay Area or Los Angeles Basin, um, we're talking about the, the, the big one, the eight point something, we will see many of these kinds of collapse. Uh, patterns. Um, now, we have a better building code out here. It's a very strong building code. Um, and and uh, many of our buildings are designed to, to fall, but not necessarily pancake. But we still have a lot of older structures uh, in the building inventory. And it, it is something that um, it's really important to understand. That's why we put in the earthquake early warning system. Uh, it's something that we want all Californians to download the app and And get that on their on their smartphone so that they could get a warning when the earthquake is coming their way they can drop cover and hold they can get out of harm's way uh but also uh work with uh uh, to retrofit buildings both commercial structures and invest into
0: that because um unfortunately these kinds of things do happen hey mark let me interrupt you real quick what is where do people get that app they just go on their phone what do they search yeah,
2: they can just go to caloes.ca.gov and they can download um, uh, the app. It's, it's on there. Um, or they can go to um, uh, the uh, – it's, it's www.ca – hold on a second here. It's coming. Uh, earthquake.ca.gov, earthquake.ca.gov, and you can download the app and, and get it on your phone. And, and it gives you a lot of infa- interesting information about earthquake preparedness. But the most important thing it gives you is that depending on where you are located in correlation to the epicenter of an earthquake, you can get a few seconds up to 90 seconds of warning. Wow. Um, and, and that is significant in being able to do some good things uh, for yourself and your family. But also, if you think about it, uh, and we're working with a lot of uh, transportation industry, medical community, et cetera, schools, alarms can go off, kids can get under desks, desk, trains can be slowed or stopped. Uh, so that they don't derail. Uh, medical uh, procedures can be halted or suspended. Um, uh, and, you know, firehouse doors can go up so that they don't get off track and the fire agents can come out. All of these things are are we're working as mitigation uh, efforts to be able to get this and, and make our as,
0: as state as safe as possible. So this building in Florida had apparently been identified. There have been some inspections that, that identified problems with this building. Can you speak to california system like that do we we have building inspectors that go through and regularly inspect skyscrapers or i don't even know if that qualified as a skyscraper but tall buildings and identify these kind of problems i'm, I'm thinking specifically of the building in san francisco that's sinking the millennium tower which yeah. what did you say john it's sunk 18 inches in the last few years yeah. 18 inches which is a, a lot yeah well and this is exactly why um you know
2: we 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 you could not that continue to happen. I mean, you know, I don't have all the details of the event in Florida, but I I have heard the news like everyone else that there were some issues with sinking um, uh, and uh, soil uh, issues. So um, we we do have a very robust um, uh, local building official program and local building officials do do inspections. Uh, There's multiple layers of inspection, there's inspection by the state fire marshal's office, there's inspection by your local marshal but then there's the, the, the building officials themselves. These are structural engineer uh, folks that go in and, and look at buildings. Um, each city and community has sort of a rotation pattern of, of, of how they look at these buildings. each building depending on the, on the year it was built, the type of construction, um, uh, the, the height of the building, the occupancy rate, all of those are factors that are considered and how often the building gets uh, evaluated. Um, uh, and in the case of Millennium Towers, you know, they did catch it and they have been working on um, a, a fix on that. And, and, and of course, uh, the fact is, is, they didn't let people continue to, you know, just sort of live there uh, while they were dealing with it or they put in mitigation efforts in to protect it. I do know that they've had some solutions to that uh, that problem in San Francisco. But, um, uh, you know, these types of things that you cannot rest back on your heels when when we have this, you know, there's, there's metal, metal fatigue, there's, there's concrete fatigue, but again, we in California have the most stringent building codes uh, in the world. And uh, we really do, um, you know, we, you know, but that doesn't mean that we still are not going to have problems in a, in a big event. So we just need to stay at it every day.
1: So when buildings come down, we often know the cause might be an earthquake. It might be an explosion, but this one wasn't like that at all. I, I, uh, it just came down all of a sudden, and uh, I saw a couple of interviews with building specialists back in Florida where they thought it started at the bottom, maybe in the underground garage. There was there was evidence of of spalling and cracking the pool itself. There was water leakage. Did, just from what you've seen looking at it, do you have some guesstimate as to what what happened back there? What may have caused it? Well, obviously
2: about a structural engineer, but I will tell you that I just you know I think that there was some under lining um uh undermining of the of the uh, soil that that held the you know the question is how far down deep did the pylons go that that were the cornerstones of that building and um and but the yeah i did hear that there were some issues between the swimming pool and maybe some leakage and then the undermining uh and the sand uh soil uh compaction issues so you know, I don't know. I, it, you know, obviously this will be a criminal uh, uh, and civil um, uh, issue. And uh, that's another factor in, in the efforts of the search and rescue teams there is that every piece of debris, um, every item that's removed uh, is part of the criminal investigation. All has to be gone through methodically. They're moving all that to a different location and they're going through it all to look for um, any signs or pieces of information that will help them determine
0: what the cause and origin of this was. So, speaking of search and rescue, one of the interesting things I've heard in this incident is that most search and rescue teams are volunteers. Uh, not in this case. Uh, in, in the urban search
2: and rescue program in the nation, these are all predominantly uh, firefighter based. They're they're sort of special operations uh, uh, in the fire service. They they you they come up with a, a team of of folks that include. Uh, uh, doctors and and structural engineers and hazmat specialists and search dogs. They may have a couple of volunteers on that team. Um, But where you're talking about search and rescue volunteers is in our law enforcement uh, side of the house. We, you know, we talk Uh, about wilderness search and rescue mountain search and rescue. That is all about 99.9% volunteers. And, and, oh my gosh, I have to tell you that program is unbelievably fantastic. Those folks are out every weekend, um, every day uh, of the year. Uh, they're doing search and rescue operations. They work closely with our state sheriffs, uh, which have the primary responsibility for search and rescues in the county. And um, and that's all coordinated here through, through Cal OES and our, our law enforcement division. Um, uh, but those folks are unsung her- heroes, man. They save lots and lots of people every year. We don't even hear about it.
1: Mark, looking forward this year, in uh, California, leaving Florida, which I'm happy to do, by the way. Uh, but looking at California, what, uh, you know, with climate change and the drought and the heat wave and et cetera, et cetera, what, what's your take on what we can expect this year? What, what may happen in terms of fires, for one thing? Well, I mean, look, we're going back
2: into a, a very severe drought uh, pattern, um, Pretty pretty quick, actually. Turnaround since our last drought, as you remember, lasted for about four and a half years or so, and then we had some pretty good precipitation afterwards, and 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 now we're going back into a pretty severe drought. What I'm reading and all the briefings I've gotten is that this drought will be worse than the last drought, and and um, it's going to be you know really Western U.S. Um, last year we saw in 2020 a heat dome that came over the Western U.S. That was the first that we've seen uh, in that event that. that that just basically superheated the atmosphere. Um, and then we had uh, a lot of dry lightning that went with it. Uh, as we sit here today, that similar heat dome has been has, has evolved and is setting up over the northern part of the of the of the West. And you've got 116 degrees in Portland yesterday. I mean, it's unheard of, right? Um, and so, you know, um, we are we are seeing a drier summer, uh, a drier winter, a hotter summer. Uh, so driers are dry, and the wetters, are the, 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 the uh, dry conditions are, uh, are drier, and the wets are less, which is, which is problematic in our um, ability to get a good snowpack, that then obviously has an impact on our reservoir levels. So conservation is going to be key in that in the drought space, but all of this adds to um, uh, an amplified fire potential. Uh, We're seeing more fires this year at this time than we saw at this year, last year. Okay. At this time last year. So more fires this time this year than we saw this time last year that, that, and we're seeing pretty good fires in the high country at this time of the year, which we typically don't see that until later in the summer, but because there's been such low precipitation and a small snowpack, we're seeing fires start in the high country pretty quickly. So these are all signals to us that we're going to be in a pretty rough fire season. Now our strategy in California has been to get on these fires as fast as we possibly can to keep them small. Uh, That's in our response. And that's been working pretty good so far. Winds and hot winds are going to be a factor. We've had a lot of windy, windy days in this beginning of this season so far. And um, as you know, with those hot winds, it takes whatever moisture is left in the, in the fuel beds out, and then that just makes a lot more, more potential for wildfires to take place. Um, so everything gets like, you know, super dry. And then, and then it just takes a, somebody with a catalytic converter, hot catalytic converter, you know, stopping on the side of the road, and pretty soon you have a, a, a fire that gets started. If there's any wind behind it, then we're sort of off to the races. So we're really working hard to do a lot of predictive, working with our National Weather Service, uh, Cal OES, Cal Fire, the US Forest Service, uh, the National Guard, all working closely together with our local government fire departments um, to um, assess where we're going to have our high risk areas. Um, We're looking at um, the, um, we lay over GIS mapping and, and we look at where our high risk areas are, what we call fire corridors, um, high population zones, and if we have a red flag condition, what we're doing is pre-positioning fire assets in those areas so that, that we can get on fires very rapidly, but we also may be doing some pre-evacuations uh, uh, prior to a fire breaking out when we think that there could be a potential, particularly in a high wind event, where we want to get people out of harm's way sooner. We do not want another campfire paradise situation, and so that is something that we are Really working hard on. We're going to have a busy season. Um, we're still early in the season, and remember, you guys know, being here for many years, we start. We, we're we're burning hot and heavy into you know November, December, and in January. You know, two years, last three years, we've been fighting fire at Christmas time, right? So uh, things that, things have changed, and uh, and so we're we're really going to be um, all in this and and at it for the next several months.
1: There was an issue uh, a couple years ago. Um, where communications was interrupted at the worst possible time when there were fire, fire people on the lines, firefighters on the lines and communicating with headquarters with other agencies. Was that glitch figured out and resolved? How, how would you characterize communications now? Well, we, well, the communications on a couple different levels. So, so the whole issue with cell phone communications
2: um, was problematic in 17, 18. And again, and, and, uh, and uh, well, uh, started at 15, and then it it, it got uh, it got really super bad up through um, 18. The campfire. Um, we work with the California Public Utilities Commission uh, and the utilities to, and I talk about the utilities, not the power utilities, but the but they're tangential to this. But the providers of of uh, you know AT and Ts and Verizon's and all these people who have cell phones uh, to put some you know part hard, harden in their infrastructure. They needed to do that. These these cell sites were burning over they they, they did they were burning over or if PG;E was turning the power off because of a public safety power shutoff these these um, these uh, cell sites were going down and 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 of course at the same time the, the phone companies have gotten rid of the hard lines people have to depend almost exclusively on their cell phones and if you live in a rural area you're you're basically out of luck so you know we, we need to have that infrastructure in place stay up stay operational um, since since uh, 2018, um, the uh, carriers have done a lot to harden their uh, cell sites. They, we've required them to put battery backup or fuel backup uh, sites there. We've uh, required them to do defensible space planning uh, and, and clear all of the debris around their cell sites. Many of these cell sites never had any clearance done, and so that was a, a, a big uh, movement forward. Um, and uh, we've been working a lot with utilities, PG&E in Southern California, Edison, and San Diego Gas, Electric, et cetera, to, to try to micromanage the grid um, so that as, as they're turning off powers in the PSPS, we, they can work closely with us. If we have an evacuation area um, going, we can try to get the power turned back on in that area so we can have communications and getting people moved out. In the meantime, for tactical communications, what I call that operations, fire service, we have, um, uh, you know, a lot of continuity of government capacity. So moving in mobile, cellular on wheels, or um, satellite communications capabilities that we have, all of that is in place, uh, we utilize it all, we can move both data and and voice communications. Um, and then we've got, you know, levels of backup that, that we can uh, use. And then for the public, we're also still uh, working on um, trying to hammer out various ways to be able to get alert and warnings out beyond the cell cell phones, which is the primary way, but uh, radio TV, um, the ability to uh, push signals out through the emergency uh, broadcast systems and, uh, and some new technologies that we're looking at uh, through the FM radio band. So um, various various activities in this area, but the, the main thing is if you live in a fire prone area, uh you, you, you're probably pretty cognizant of fire weather, and you need to be very, very vigilant and, and pay attention to any alert and warnings that could be coming out prior to a fire starting. And if a fire does start in your area, you know, pay attention to local authorities. Uh, and, and if to, you're told to evacuate, you know, have a plan, uh, but don't wait, evacuate, because these fires can move very, very fast.
1: As far as housing goes, uh, an issue that always comes up with fires uh, is rebuilding in areas that have already, or a fire has already swept through. People want to live where they want to live. Mm -hmm. So housing, constructing housing in fire-prone areas is an issue that's come up here, especially now with the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. You know where we're at on that as a state? Uh, Is it permissible to build essentially where you want? You can have defensible space as required by zoning laws, for example, but... Can we build pretty much where we want to build? Well,
2: it's a great question. Um, and you know, I, I think that there's been so much destruction and, and life loss over the course of the last few years that, the the effort of, of building where you want is, is, uh, and that ethos and that, that local planning uh, initiative is changing. Um, you know, we have been pushing hard that, uh, 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 the general plan on the front end of, of, of approving of general plan at the local level should be started with the hazard mitigation piece and, and with the general plan versus doing your general plan and then plug in your hazard mitigation. in after the fact, um, you know, there are the, the, there's a lot of factors and pressures that are on this, everything from the insurance industry, all the way down that say that you, you, you can't just build wherever you want to and, and expect, you um, you know, you're going to get all the, the resources and services. Um, uh, we are requiring and looking at, you know, um, the uh, building codes to be updated. Um, we are looking at uh, home hardening, uh, how you build your home, if you're going to live in the WUI, the wildland urban interface or the intermix. Um, what, what, is, what, what, mater- what roofing materials are you going to use? What screening materials are you going to use? How is your house going to be as, as hardened as possible for wildfire? What requirements will you have for defensible space planning? Um, how, and then for local governments like like Paradise, who are trying to rebuild, um, you know, the the their whole road systems needs to be revamped because really, you know, that 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 community was built sort of in the 70s. It was sort of a patchwork of of uh, of homes and streets that were put in place, and uh, now we need to look at um, how do we build where you have roads that are wide enough to get out if you have to, uh, that you don't have roads that are crisscrossing each other and make it very complicated in a smoky dark environment. Um, And so uh, transportation planning um, uh, and funding that we're we're providing uh, is requiring that um, uh, in the recovery process that, uh, that they are addressing it in this way. So we're looking through all of that and we're working with local governments uh, throughout the state uh, through that process. And there are a number of bills in the legislature as well. Uh, last year, of course, there was an AB 38, which was a home hardening bill, uh, which, which gave us an opportunity to work with local governments. Uh, it was a, a seven member wood bill um, that um, you know, just really focused this point of home hardening, uh, community hardening. But this is a whole of community approach, right? You, you can't just have one guy who, one person who hardens their home and then everybody in that community does it. That's not going to help. What we need to do is we need to approach it as a whole of community and um, put in a series of different kinds of, uh, of mitigative efforts to be able to make that community as safe and secure as possible. So this is something that you don't just turn the switch on. It, it's a it's a it's a change in culture. It's a change in ethos. It's a change in planning. Uh, but we continue to, to work at it. And, and of course, the governor has been um, really leading a lot of this uh, discussion in, in the course of the last few years.
0: Well, and speaking of the governor, uh, he got hammered last week in the story from Capitol Public Radio and NPR about inflating the number of acres that have been prepared. And I know there's been some pushback on that and that there maybe there were some questions about that. Can you speak to that? That's probably confusing to the average person, the difference between uh you know the the language that they're using, talking about these preparation of these ninety thousand acres. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Um, well, probably a question better asked of Cal Fire. But you know, in general, you
2: know, there was a, a lot of, of acreage that was um, was covered. In other words, it was um, mitigated. And uh, I think that 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 um, the questions and the things that I sort of observed was that. You know how much of this prevented wildfire right and and how much will it prevent wildfire and and the truth of the matter is is that we know for a fact that it, that it did prevent wildfire in a number of cases uh, or it slowed or more importantly it allowed the time that was necessary for firefighters to be able to build a defense in, in an area which then helped to either slow or mitigate the loss of of homes and structures and ultimately in many cases allowed people to evacuate or save lives um, I, I think that you know this this concept of, of an all or nothing uh, is not really a realistic uh, a view. And I think that the um, uh, the the way that the the reporters looked at that, I think um, you know, as far as looking at the numbers, Cal Fire looks at their their acreage in in certain in certain demographics, certain ways uh, that uh, they determine um, how much it gets covered and based upon what their responsibility is, based upon what the federal responsibility is, based upon what the local responsibility is. So um, for the most part, um, you know, this has been a priority since day one, um, you know, by the administration. Um, uh, it, I think that, that unfortunately, I think it was a little disingenuous on the reporter's part. The amount of effort that this governor has put forth um, in this space has been uh, unbelievable. And I can tell you, I've been here, I've been doing this for thirty plus years. Started under Governor George Duke uh, and I've been around for a while. And um, while there's been efforts here and there, I've not seen an effort to this degree, to this magnitude, uh, in fire mitigation, focusing the issue on fire prevention and preparedness, and making sure we've had the resources. Not there's not a silver bullet to this, but but beyond what what Governor Newsom has done, it's been kind of slow to go. So, um, you know, I think that at this point, uh, we're making headway and uh, we have a lot more to do. This is something that got, got created over the course of many years. And, uh, and, you know, that's all I have to say to that. I mean, I, I wish, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't have all the, I, I think Cal Fire has got some probably better specific details on the numbers for you, but I'm talking about the overarching, where we were, where we're at and where we're going is this is something that is going to get built into the fabric of California because droughts aren't going away. The the climate change impacts is that the West will get drier. Not just us, Nevada, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Texas, all these Western states, Colorado, and we're seeing massive wildfires in all of them. We all need to approach this in a collective way. And um, it's unfortunate. It's a weird change of events that we're seeing didn't think I'd see it in my lifetime, but you know, if I grew up in California, born and raised here, and i you could just see it uh, as as we are changing in um, in the way that the climate is impacting our our state. Um, and uh, so, um, and in my office, what we're doing is working hard to be to try to stay in front of of the various scenarios that could be developed. Um, everything from sea level rise to you know drought to you know, significant wildfire to drinking water problems, all cascading issues, because eventually at some point, drought and heat and all this becomes a public health crisis, right? And uh, all of that is, you know, making sure and then it also becomes an economic impact. So there's a lot of cascading impacts that work through this. I know that we get, we like to get centered on, on, you know, uh, oh, the governor didn't say, you know, he said 50 acres, and it was only 20 acres. And we lose sight of the bigger fact of the fact that, we're doing a lot to mitigate this challenge.
1: Well, Mark, on that happy note, uh, we will say thank you very much. All we did was talk <laughs> about fires. I wanted to get to quakes and floods. So I think yeah. in the wintertime, we'll get you back and you can talk about floods. So anyway.
0: Maybe you. there won't be enough water to flood. That could be the next <laughs> <moment>.
1: <laughs> Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, after every drought,
2: it's interesting, we do see a very high level of precipitation. So it's kind of a weird deal. So um, anyway, but we got to get to the drought. So um, <laughs> Anyway, happy back. Happy to talk to you guys. I appreciate the opportunity and, and just being able to talk about this stuff is, is good stuff.
1: Mark, thank you very much for talking with us about fires, disasters, and uh, assorted issues. And right now, Tim Foster and I are going to talk about who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week.
3: The worst week.
1: And we asked Natalie Hanson, former reporter for the Chico Enterprise Record, who covered the Chico City Council when... They had two resignations from the council in a space of a week. And now and Natalie's with the Marin Independent Journal. Uh, but we asked her and she readily agreed. Thank you on such short notice to come and chat with us today. So Natalie, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank so, you for having me and I appreciate the opportunity.
0: So can uh, you explain to our listeners what exactly happened in the last week and a half? In Chico? Yes.
3: In six days, we had two counselors resign. Both were connected to issues of residency um, and alleged harassment. Um, and one counselor is still a Chico resident. Um, he took a summer job. And when that was protested, he ultimately resigned. And then within the next six days, another counselor abruptly resigned. Um, she was found to likely have property in Tehama County, where she should be representing Chico, which is within, within Butte County.
1: Mm-hmm. The um, the issue of where a legisl uh, excuse me where a city councilor lives is important because they're required to live in the district they represent or is there something else going on do you think
3: yes um, now it's in our charter um, we had talked to the city clerk Debbie Preston, in regards to this uh, and. Presson said that in her first statement to us that she did not think it was necessary for either resignation. Um, In Huber's case, it was because he had notified her. He also was not missing three meetings in a row. He had lined up plane flights to come back for two months and then be back in August uh, from Wyoming. This case with Denley is a little more complicated because we don't have all the details of when she acquired property in the other County and whether she was living there or not. Mm -hmm. So things are still up in the air as to where her residence truly was. She has a residence in Chico, which is why the city clerk said this seems clear cut. However, we have not proven where she was living
1: in her case. Um, actually in both cases, but mostly in her case, I think she had raised the issue whether she was being targeted unfairly by the media, whether she had been surveilled and harassed. Uh, And Scott Huber had raised those issues relative to his job and temporary job, I guess, in Wyoming, which he later left. Did you see any substance to these allegations? Were they being harassed? Were social media after them, so to speak?
3: Right. In the first case with Councillor Huber, we've written extensively on the proof we saw within those first three days when he announced his new position um, coming from the political action committee um, citizens for safe chico and other facebook groups that are very active in the area one chico and chico first we've written about those allegations we've allowed those groups to speak on what happened in those groups but we have seen significant amounts of posting attacking Hoover for his decision um, and urging him to resign and then I will speak to my own personal side. I did not see harassment of Denley. I saw her resign. I did not see anything in the in groups that were on perhaps the other political leaning, if you will, harassing uh-huh. her, telling her to resign. I simply saw um, that it had been found. She had a property and then she resigned. Uh-huh. <laughs> what
1: happens next? Uh, so now we have a couple of vacant seats on the council. Do they call special elections for those? Are there the positions that are appointed and filled temporarily. Uh, how does that work?
3: We are, according to our own charter, we can have a special election, but the council can also uh, within 30, just call that the seat is uh, vacant and then have um, applications and appointments. And so that's what it's looking like they're going to do. They haven't yet decided because now they have two seats, not just the one. It sounded uh-huh. very likely that Hooper would be the case- with that chair. Um, But now it still looks like they're going to have appointments.
1: Mm -hmm. Has anybody thrown their hat in the ring up there who wants to succeed them? Is there any, are there any likely, any usual suspects of people who want to step into those seats? Yeah, it sounds
0: like such a blast to be a city council. I know, so much fun. You know?
3: <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I wouldn't consider myself very qualified to state on that. I do. I will say in Denley's case, we need to find out what exactly happened with her address during the election because that was one, we are a districted community and there were two other candidates running and one of them, who is a former mayor, uh, three times, and Schwab, did receive a significant portion of votes. Therefore, I would be interested first to see uh, what exactly that means for when she ran was that her address of residence would that go back far enough to warrant a special election for district three i don't know um, but i will say in that case i would wonder if ms schwab would be considering it again um, i have no idea with mr hoover's district simply because that seat he was elected at large we were not a district community when he was elected and so that would be more complicated to fill i think
1: is, is the mayor's office um, elected separately, or is it an appointed position that the city council decides on, or is it rotated regularly? A lot of cities have different ways. I'm just wondering about Chicom.
3: Yes, we are now uh, elect by district. So last time we only elected four, we did not elect three of our districts, only four of them, I believe. And we then had the council select a mayor and a vice mayor from that count. Great,
1: okay. Natalie Hanson, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for enlightening us about the vagaries of Chico politics. This has been great, and congrats by the way on the IJ Marin, Marin Independent Journal. That's really cool.
3: Thank you so uh, much.
1: Yeah, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And, thanks, Emily. I guess we'll talk to you next time around. Thanks again.
3: Thank you, Tim and John. Have a good one. Sure. Bye.
0: Thank you. Too. The Capital Weekly podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot and we'll see you next week.